There's a, a figure named Melchizedek who shows up in the book of Genesis to deal with Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 14, 17 to 20. Uh, Genesis 14, uh, 17 to 20. After Abram's return from uh, the defeat of the Chaldeumer, uh, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Um... When we, when we deal with this, it's, it's a weird thing in just that there is this, this guy who shows up out of nowhere who has no genealogy to speak of. We just sort of have him all of a sudden dealing with Abram. Um, but it's something that's, that's named later in a psalm, um, Psalm 110, which talks about the Messiah um, and an order of Melchizedek. Uh, uh, and uh, it shows up again later in Hebrews, which is largely where we're going to be working with uh, Tonight, um, Melchizedek as a whole, he, he, got, he stand, stands as a counterpoint. Um, at, at this time, Abram and Lot had just split up, and, and Lot goes off to, you remember where Lot goes to? Sodom and, yeah, Lot goes off to Sodom and Gomorrah, um, which we've sort of just tunnel visioned into the fact that, that they, um, they were sexually immoral. Um, but these were um, big and, and prosperous kingdoms. Um, this, this is a land that, that um, vastly um, outweighed uh, Melchizedek's uh, land of Salem, or Jerusalem, in uh, prestige. Um, Lot, Lot runs that way, after money, after you know, power, after fame. But Melchizedek stands as the opposite of all of these things. Um, and especially as this will play out, uh, you'll start to see then um, everything that, that uh, goes different in Sodom versus what happened to, to God's own people. Uh, the weird thing about Melchizedek is he's a priest and a king at the same time, and that's typically a no-no. Um, in fact, there's really no other instances of this. Some people would argue that David, to some extent, um, performed some priestly duties, but uh, we'll get to that. Um, over and over again, though, uh, this name Melchizedek uh, pops up um, as an order. Um, the name Melchizedek means righteousness, and Salem means peace. So what we have then is a king of righteousness from the land of peace. So how does righteousness play itself out as, as peace? Um, when, we, when we talk about all of these things, it, it just sort of seems like details until you start to put a, a larger picture. So as, as Melchizedek blesses Abram, and Abram tithes the 10%, something weird happens. Um, this is just as Abram is returning back from a battle victorious. Normally, if you were about to go to, to war, would you maybe pray beforehand? Seek the blessing beforehand? Abram gets it afterward, and he tithes before he gets it. Um, Abram tithes 10% to, to the priest, Melchizedek. Um, and there's this pattern that, that sort of gets broken here. Namely, and, and when did God give the victory, before or after? Yeah, this had already happened. Abram was already victorious before he ever came for the blessing. Uh, and the tithe that, that, that went into it. In the Old Testament, we get the idea that God insists that we give him our stuff, and then we buy him off. 
If I feel bad, I have to kill one of my own precious animals, and then maybe God will let it go. If, if I, I need something from God, I'll sacrifice to him, and then because he is pleased with my offering, he'll reward me. And this is how the pagan gods work as well, right? And, and we, we do this thing where we try and barter with God. Even today, God, I will pray, I will fast. Uh, Luther became a monk for this reason. Uh, we, we, we put it in our heads that um, we will do God a solid if he only will do this thing. But there is a, um, a circle when it comes to tithing, and, and we have by and large jumped in at the wrong point. Um, as we, we see uh, the, the interaction between Abram and, and Melchizedek, there's a pattern that doesn't start with, with necessarily with us, but with God. And so even if we want to grab hold of the, the we sacrifice to God and he'll reward us for it, that, where did all that stuff come from? Well, it came from God to begin with. So here's the question, did God give it with intent? Yeah, he gave it because he loved us, but did God give it with intent? In other words, um, if you give your kid a pocket knife, is it just because you love him? Or is there an intention behind that gift? Right, it's, it's certainly not for, um, let's put it in my eye, there, there's a, uh, let's learn to use it properly, but why does a kid have a knife? I mean, using it properly. Right. It's a tool. You're actually giving it to him that he might use it for a specific purpose. There are purposes, yes, which it must not be used for. But you wouldn't just give it so you can say, now look at it and don't ever use it. You give it so that it can be used as a tool. There's an intent behind these gifts. When God gives us gifts, it, it is always with intent that, that you would be given... Um, I mean, go to the first article of the Creed. Um, you, you know, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses. That God gives you that, it's for a purpose. Um, and, and so we we, we kind of. How? Not just for good in general either. He he actually has specific intent. And so then when God um, made me and he knew that I was going to be clumsy and awkward and bad at sports, he at least gave me a big mouth. Um, and he made me like books. Um, eventually, though, these gifts were not just used so that I could be sarcastic towards my neighbor, but. To help my neighbor inside of a vocation, a specific vocation, too. Um, that that um, we are given um, even, even stuff. God gives with intent. He doesn't just say, here's some stuff, I want to see what you do with it. He actually then gives that you might serve your neighbor inside of your vocation. Right? And so um, you see this even inside of um, how economies work. That, that um, we have farmers who then have been given gifts of harvest. How are they supposed to use it? Do they just sit on the, the grain and say, look how much grain I got, I got a big pile of corn? That serves nobody. Instead, they, they sell it. And a whole community has benefited from this. There's an intention behind the crop that is given. When God gives animals, yes, some of it is for food, but in the Old Testament, what, did, what if God just gave you extra so that you would have plenty to sacrifice? Like you act like this was such a sacrifice of your own self when who was it that gave it to you? And he gave it with intent. Like this is the, the sin of selfishness. You take that which God intended for everyone's use and you say, no, this, is, this has to be just for me because I'm pretty sure God won't give me anymore. Well, what makes you think he won't? And what makes you think your neighbor doesn't deserve it? What makes you think the intention that God gave it for is, is, is that poor? It's like the kid running with a pocket knife. I gave you this for a reason. 
there's great good that can come from it. That you're going to do these things with it instead is, is yes, sin, because it's, it's not only harmful to yourself, but it doesn't benefit those around you. When God then would demand sacrifice, well, he gave you plenty for that sacrifice. So first God gives, and then God says, of that thing that I gave you, I'm going to use that thing that I gave you that you might receive even more from it. Sort of like, well, how do we get more corn? Well, we plant the corn that God had first given us, and we harvest it. What, what does a corn seed look like? You mean that God would give you this thing, and then from that gift that he gave you, he would use that gift to give you even more gifts? No. Yes. Um, how much more so with this? God actually works spiritually in this way as well. Um, he, he, he gives these gifts, not just to say, now are you going to do the right thing or not? Let's see. Not just to say, you know, let's see what kind of choices you make, but even just these gifts are for food and these gifts are for sacrifice. And when you use this for food, you'll be benefited. And when you use this for sacrifice, you'll be benefited. So God gives. And of that which he gives, we use for its purpose. And, and it yet grows even more. Um, this is then a cycle that continues onward and onward. It's never just that we buy God off when we want something. But, but it's always um, a question of, of, first of all, recognizing where did these gifts come from? Because only in faith will we start to be able to make these, these insights. We recognize that they came from God. And this God that he gave it, was it a one-off thing or does he actually love you and promise to take care of you? It might not always be the way you want. It might not be always the way that you expect. But as he promised to take care of you. Well, then we go forth in, in, in that understanding. When we acknowledge where it comes from, recognizing that it's, it's, it's not even our sacrifice. It's God providing it. it. It makes it a very different thing. The Old Testament is not where we bribe God and the New Testament is not the opposite. It, it's always where God gives gifts and he uses those gifts to manifest yet more all the same. Over and over and over again. Because God is a living God. He plays this out inside of all of creation. Jesus himself says, you know, how can we, um, well, unless the kernel falls to the earth and dies, it cannot sprout forth. And this is foreshadowing what? His own death and resurrection. Yeah. When you look at where we started, Adam and Eve, when you look at where we started after the flood with Noah, that God would use these things to, to continue to, to sprout forth and, and manifest more. Um, it, it shows what kind of God he is. It shows um, that this is a cycle that he actually does intend to continue. Um, and so the pattern behind it is, is relevant. It, it, it matters because um, it's, it's just so clearly out of the blue and, and backwards from how we, we sort of want to paint the picture of, I need something from God, so I'll give him some stuff so he'll give me a good victory in battle. No. God already gave it. Thanks be to God that it came from him. I recognize where it came from him. And he also promises to give me more, so I'm going to keep coming back. Are you kind of with me on that? Yeah. Yeah? Um, one of the things that, that stands weird with, with Melchizedek is um, he's a priest without a genealogy. Um, I'm going to go to Hebrews. Let's, let's jump into Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. 
Hebrews chapter 7 is the, the chapter that, that kind of really starts to deal with, with Melchizedek. And, and we'll jump backwards um, from there a couple more times, but I really do want to pick up right here. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What's weird so far? That's weird. I know an Alpha and Omega, but... Um, see, this is really where we start to find interest in Melchizedek. Um, in so many ways, Melchizedek is a, is a, is a picture of Jesus. Um, when we start to say then that the, the priest forever after an order of Melchizedek, um, we, we start to recognize what it is to be a, even a priest without genealogy. Because that's not something that's common. So um, in the Old Testament, if you were going to be a priest, you were born a, a Levite. And so I, I knew I was supposed to be a priest because I'm a Levite. And you know I'm supposed to be a priest because I'm a Levite. So when I, a Levite, come to you and I say, thus saith the Lord, you say, well... Yeah, you're a son of Aaron. Okay. This guy shows up out of the blue. And that's, that's not normal. Most people don't work that way. If I just showed up here five years ago and said, you know what, I'm the new pastor, listen to me. Also give me money. How would that go? I mean, y'all don't like salesmen showing up at your door unannounced. There you can actually see what's going on. How do you know? <laughs> right. So um, as far as how men have spoken um, the word of the Lord, we, we kind of talked about this a, a long, long time ago when we started with the book of Ephesians. Um, there, there are two kinds of, of people who are sent out by God to, to speak things. Um, there, there are those who have immediate call and those who have an immediate call. Um, and by, by these words, I don't just mean immediate like right away. I mean immediate as in with means. And immediate apart from me. So I have immediate call to serve as pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Woodside, Nebraska. Um, which means you can actually know I'm supposed to be the guy. How do you know I'm the guy? You issued me the call. I was ordained. I was installed. Good. And I wear stuff that, that is a testament to this immediate call, too, on Sunday, because I know what, what a jerk I sound like most of the time, and I know how incompetent I am all the time. And so when I have to actually speak God's words to you, I put on special funny clothes. I put on a stole that says, God has promised to speak. And you know it because the church has put that stole on me. I didn't take it myself. It was put on me. Not by my own choice. But when I was ordained, that stole was put on me that, that people would actually say, all right, maybe I should actually listen to him when he preaches. Um, whenever we, we sort of divorce ourselves then from the immediate call, um, it gets complicated. Like, you know you're supposed to listen to me because I'm your pastor. I was called here. And I know where I'm supposed to pastor because I'm called there. That this is how the order of the church ha has worked. And so um, in the Old Testament, then, if you were a, a Levite, you had immediate call. I know who you are. 
you're the, the son of Aaron who was then trained up to be a priest and sent to, to sacrifice. It gets trickier when you don't have one of those, when you just sort of show up out of the blue. There's a few prophets that do it, and it always gets them into trouble a little bit too. So you can go then to, um, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said, I don't know about this. Woe is me. So when the Lord sends Isaiah, when he sends prophets, he sends them with accompanying signs. Um, he, he says then, you will speak according to the other prophets. You will speak according to my word. You will not give doctrine that is different. But you also do signs. Um, miracles. The prophets did miracles, right? Elijah raised somebody from the dead, called down fire, did all sorts of cool stuff. This is that people might know what he's speaking is true. Now, are there bad guys that did miracles too? I mean, even Pharaoh's magicians were able to copy a few of the plagues, right? The devil himself can do these things. How do you know? what goes along with the rest of the word of God. We don't go rogue here. Everybody works together. If you're on God's team, who do you think is speaking but God? And so when Elijah was sent to speak, was he sent to speak a different thing than Moses? Or the same thing? Same thing. Was Peter and Paul sent to speak different words or same words? Same God, same voice, same speaking. I'm, we, we confess an apostolic faith, which means that, that when I preach, I ought to be in accord with and if I'm not in accord with scriptures, we got a problem, don't we? So when God then would, would speak just out of the blue, he almost always accompanies it with signs. Sometimes we're not told about them specifically. But again, Melchizedek stands apart because he's a king. He's got the office. Like he's not showing up out of the blue and trying to prove himself. He shows up and Abram recognizes him goes to him, sacrifices to him, that, or tithes to him that he might have blessing. Um, he has no birth and no death. We can even keep reading in this, Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Um, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives his tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Past tense or present tense? The author of Hebrews is saying Melchizedek might still be around. What do you think? It makes it sound like it's the living God. Here's something different. I want to go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110.
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute justice among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Um, Jesus himself wrestles with this one with the Pharisees, doesn't he? You want to look at that? Let's go Matthew uh, 22, 41 to 45. Matthew 22, 41 to 45. This shows up in the New Testament. Matthew 22, 41 to 45. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. What are the Pharisees having trouble with? Right, that this, this son of David is somehow greater than David. And the only way he's going to be greater than David is to be... I mean, yeah, we, we then would say the Christ would be somehow greater than David, this much so. This, this David's son, yet David's Lord, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're still not quite to the word God yet. But we're, we're painting attributes, though, that, that really only go one way, aren't we? So here's my real question before we go in. Um, we know that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh on Christmas, right? Like that, that's what we celebrate, that God became man. Um, was Jesus around before that or was Jesus created? Jesus was always around. He is the Alpha and the Omega. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, without him, none of the things that were made were made. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the second person of the Trinity, though he wasn't yet born and named Jesus yet, was still and is still in the same way that God is. Um, did he do stuff then in the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity? Or was he just sort of like we have, you know, professional wrestling tag team match and, uh, you know, Jesus is, is just like reaching out there. He really wants to drop the divine elbow on the devil, but he can't until the New Testament and God tags him in. And then, then they swap places and we don't see the father anymore. Now we only have the son. No. No. Um, the Trinity actually works in unison. We have a Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. That, that in the Old Testament then, in Genesis chapter 1, can you find all three persons of the Trinity? Yes. You see, in the beginning was God, the spirit that hovered over the waters of the deep. And you also have the word, that word of God, which spoke. Was the second person of the Trinity um, in the book of Daniel in the fiery furnace involved? There were four men in the furnace. And one of them looked like, one of them looked like the son of God. Mm -hmm. Good. 
the angel of the Lord. What does angel mean? Do you remember? Messenger is really what the word translates to. Um, From Greek, it it literally means messenger. Um, And that's the Greek is what Jesus kind of uses, even as he quotes the Old Testament. He uses the Septuagint, the the Greek Old Testament. Um, The angel of the Lord sometimes is just an angel. But sometimes the angel of the Lord is more than just an angel. Sometimes the angel of the Lord is, is quite frankly, it's, it's the second person of the Trinity doing stuff before he took on human flesh. Um, the, the second person of the Trinity being involved in the Old Testament is important because the second person of the Trinity is the Redeemer. Um, it, it is, it is um, God at work then to redeem his people from his sins. Is that something God any interest in in the Old Testament? Yeah. When we start to, to paint this picture then, um, the idea that, that Jesus, even yet being before, before he was born and named Jesus, when we just called him the son thing, it, in fact, it's, it's a quite normal thing. Um, when, when we talk about this, we, we can start to look then um, to something larger going on, namely God being involved with his people all along as he has promised to do. I want to keep going in Hebrews chapter 7. Do you guys have any questions so far? Yeah? How about from the grown-ups? Because I know we're bouncing all over the place and just kind of gathering stuff, but we're going to keep going. I'm going to, in Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to pick back up with verse 9. Uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of the ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Um, the, the author of Hebrews um, is, is playing around and saying, all right, so Abraham, sac- or Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, right? Well, from Abraham comes all the Levites. If, if Abraham, who is um, greater than all the Levites, is tithing to Melchizedek, Melchizedek must be greater than not just Abraham, but even all the Levites. That, that whatever Melchizedek is doing, or is, or is, is, is representing, or is giving, it is somehow greater than the fulfillment of all the Old Testament priesthood acts of sacrifice coming from Aaron. All of the, the, the temple sacrifices are, are somehow, sh- well, outclassed by, by this. And this is different. Uh, I'll keep going. Um, in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, uh, let's see, I want to pick up. Uh, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there necessarily is a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that the Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. So in other words, if you're going to be a priest, you're a Levite, right? So Jesus is a Levite? No. Jesus is a son of David. He's a son of Judah. He's of a different tribe where it wasn't given to the priesthood. There's something bigger going on here. Um, that, that Jesus then would be um, of Judah and not of Levi. It, it, also points to the to the the greater here in well excuse me the, the greater here in Melchizedek points to it points to Jesus. Um, there's a greater priesthood going on here than simply God is mad do stuff 
and he won't be mad anymore. There's a greater priesthood even than, than simply the acts of the law. If the acts of the law were enough, would we have needed somebody to come from Judah to play priest? Precisely. They could only grant uh, temporary uh, from the sacrifices, yet Melchizedek could save completely Good. those that serve God. Good. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so here's the, the, the real question at hand then. Um, does God work piecemeal? No. No. Are the old temple sacrifices... Bad? No. Is this like a, a different hope than they had in the Old Testament when they, they sacrificed as, as the law of Aaron and Moses? That's exactly Was God at work inside of that temple? How do you know this? Good. Because of his command and promise. Um, this is how we do a lot of the New Testament stuff as well. Um, in the large catechism, uh, it, it threw me for such a loop until somebody taught this to me, that, that when we start to get to baptism, when we start to get to the Lord's Supper, um, the places where it's just all gospel, all Jesus working for sinners, we get it in our heads. All right, so here's where, where we're really going to get the, the, you know, just the sweet, sweet promise. And Luther starts this way. Baptism, why would you get baptized? Oh, because God says so. Get baptized because of his word and institution, his word and command. Over and over again, we get this idea that you would only be baptized because God told you to be baptized. Well, when God commands this thing and he promises to work through it, all of a sudden, you can pin down where he's going to work. In other words, how do I know that God would be merciful to me, a sinner? Well, because I had water splashed on me in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's no longer up to how I feel. It's up to, did I do it according to the word and promise? Like, this is why there are, there are specific rites that are then passed down. Um, it, it, it's not that it's a magic spell that somehow, you're right, so I know that the secret Jesus word, and if I say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I splash water just so, I can make God do what I want him to do. No. It is that God wants you to know who he is, that God wants you to know that you have received this so that he makes it tied to something so concrete that you can't possibly mess it up. Are you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with water? You're in. Stop. Don't worry about it. Period. That way, when I have sinned after, when I continue to, to wrestle with, with the devil and the world and my own sinful flesh, I can fall back on the word and command of God. So too in the old temple system, um, they were taught to sacrifice they, that um, they might know by the word and command of God, he is active behind this thing. And remember, we, we talked about this. This isn't bribing God that he would be mad no more. Um, who gave you the animals? God did. Even as he sets up this, this system, it's not demanding ever more than the people would give. There, there are sacrifices made on behalf of the whole community. Um, there are individual sin offerings, but that can be done even according to simple grain, which was given to everybody as their daily bread anyway. God never demanded that they, they give in a way that they would not be fed. In other words, it was never a question of, do I get the forgiveness of sins or dinner? God gives gifts with intent. Um, that's what, what makes them wonderful. When, um, when the intent is, is played out then, what is the, the intent that God would have given us bread and wine? 
What are, what are we supposed to do with it here? Perfect. We eat it and we drink it. Why? Well, because with the word in, in command of God, this would be his body and blood. The words of institution, this would be more than just bread and wine. And so I realized that, yes, if I drank the whole half gallon of, of sugar wine, um, I would get quite drunk and I would hate myself the next day because that's, that's, it's, it's a very sweet wine. Um, but that's not the intent of that gift. And in fact, if I just drank the whole half gallon before church, um, selfishly, um, my, my, my neighbors wouldn't be served. I would do harm to myself. God says, no, that's not what it's for. On the night when he was betrayed, say this. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then inside of that intent, great good comes. So as, as God's commandment to be present in the temple system is at play, it's not that he's not present, it's not that he's not forgiving, it's not that he's not merciful, but these things were just a shadow of the greater good. Namely, how many times did Jesus have to die on the cross? That was enough for all my sins, right? How many times did Melchizedek have to deal with, with Abraham? That was enough. How come? Because this is the whole point. All of those, those things going on in the Aaronic temple system, they were painting a picture of this one moment. That when he finally did come and, and John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, everybody might know exactly what that means. This is the one sacrifice taken flesh for us. Um, when, when we have all of these things and then sort of gathering right here, um, it, it's, it's, it's not then that, that the old temple was an absence of gospel, but that apart from the gospel, you can kill as many animals as you want and it's not going to save you. Like, show me a way to, to slaughter a cow to heaven. I can get a steak, but, I mean, it's not enough. However, if God were to promise that through this gift, there would be pardon and remission of sins, okay. But that's all by God's actual promise. Um, so, so then, what we, what we start to see then, um, as we kind of finish out this, this passage, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but in the power of indestructible life. For it is a witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of weakness and uselessness, for a law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Um, this 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 timeless thing that keeps popping up. This is an eternal order after Melchizedek. Um, is there something bigger going on here outside of, of time? An order then that conquers even death itself. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, always a priest. Always offering sacrifice for the people. Is there one timeless sacrifice for you is Jesus the priest forever um, that, that Jesus then is is, um, is is not just prophet who would speak the word of God and he's not even just king who would rule kingdom but he is also a priest Jesus is prophet, priest and king all rolled into one 
And, and this is what is truly unique, and this is what makes Melchizedek stand out. Melchizedek, who is, is the, the priest king, in a place where that's not allowed, um, is something greater than, than how God has typically worked um, through men. And it almost makes you wonder if, if Melchizedek is, in fact, again, yes, yeah, not God himself, quite literally, God at work. Um, when, we, when we start to, to see this then, um, we actually then start to talk about this as a, as a whole um, to see where the greater sacrifice is in the New Testament. Um, in, in other words, um, I want to go Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. We'll flip the page just a bit. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. You have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels at the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, um, and to sprinkle the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When you are in church, you are where? In heaven. If Jesus' blood is there, you are in the new Jerusalem with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Heaven meets earth where Jesus is. Because heaven is, well, where Jesus is. Um... In the Old Testament, um, it, it was a future hope. In the New Testament, it is a present hope. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed looking forward to the true lamb. And so they found their participation in it because God promised to tie them to it through these sacrifices. But they were, they were looking forward to a future hope. Yours is not a future hope. Yours is a present hope. And this is the one thing that we, we lose so much when we lose sight of. When we start to talk about Christianity as a future religion, as a one-day religion, as a, as a I can't wait until I die and go to heaven religion, we lose sight of the fact that God would be present now. And that's what makes this, this such a joy. That, that what we talk about then is a present hope. In other words, a hope that I don't have to wait for, but a hope that is brought to me. We, we talk a lot uh, about getting to, to see our lost loved ones again, but where do we stand next to him? In heaven. At the communion rail. We, we talk a lot about victory over sin and death and the power of the devil. But, but where do we participate in them? Where, where God would hand them out. Um, what we have right now is, is literally a tie to, to um, immortality. To eternal life. Um, or everlasting life might be the better phrasing of it. Um, but, but inside of it, we have something working right now for us. It's not then that we, we, taught, we do something on earth that uh, we, we will one day see the, the fullness of in heaven. It's that heaven is brought right to us. So when we start to struggle with, with um, well, everything that goes on right now, um, we would actually say God's not far away. We'd be able to say that God cares about it enough to actually park himself right in the middle of it. To, to carry us through it. Of all of the things that, that we talk about, um, when we make God, our religion simply a one day I'll die and go to heaven thing, we lose every promise that God actually wants you to have. It doesn't say, lo, I will be with you someday at the end of the age, but lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. This is the greater promise then that is um, eternal, that, that, that is, is um, a priest forever. 
that there was one timeless sacrifice that we are tied to that carries us forward because we're a part of it now. Are you kind of with me on this? Because this is a full deep end of the pool. Like, I realize that, that like, when we start to deal with time and space, when we start to deal with, with the eternal order, and especially when we pepper in Old Testament history inside of it, it gets complicated. Um, so to, to kind of condense it, the Old Testament is not a different God. It's the same God. But in the Old Testament, they looked forward. Melchizedek is weird. Because what Abraham is dealing with is not a looking forward promise here. So much of what we deal with Abraham is a looking forward promise, right? So the promise made to Abraham is you will have offspring, you'll have children, you'll have stars in the sky, kids, you'll have grains of sand on the beach, kids, you have lots and lots of kids. And Abraham looks forward to us. Um, what he deals with in Melchizedek is a right now promise. It's a right now blessing. It, it, it's a here for you kind of thing. Um, because God actually wishes, wishes to draw near to us and have us draw near to him. And that is realize where God would put himself. When you come to church, it's not just so you can talk about how great heaven will be and then whine about how terrible sinners are. It, it's so that you can draw near to God, who will make you a part of heaven right now, even though you yourself are a sinner. Um, churches where Jesus brings sinners into himself, makes them holy, and carries them forward into everlasting life. Does that kind of sound like what we talk about a lot? Right, so then there's this Melchizedek figure. Um, and people kind of wrestle with who he is. And I'll give you a few options, and I'll kind of tell you what I think. Um, and let me preface it by saying, I don't know, because it doesn't say. And so when it doesn't say and we start to speculate, that, that's okay. And that, that's healthy to the point that we start to stake more than we ought on it. Um, but based on what the scriptures have, have clearly taught, um, some have said that it is in fact the pre-incarnate Christ. The, the, the very same pre-incarnate Christ that was with um, the, the three in the, the, the fiery furnace. Um, that, that in fact God is active and present even in the Old Testament in the second person of the Trinity. That um, the same second person in the Trinity who spoke from the burning bush to Moses. That it's not, you know, triune tag team match. But all along, the triune God is working one divine will to bring sinners to salvation through sacrifice. It's kind of the one I'm comfortable with. Um, other groups have said this is uh, Melchizedek is the archangel Michael. Um, it, or an angel uh, of, of significance, which um, when you get to the named angels, especially in intertestamental times, gets wonky. Um, and I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole tonight. Um, but um, maybe the angels preached. The angels gave God's gifts. That's sort of what they were for. Um, even in the New Testament, then sometimes uh, the, the, um, the disciples, the pastors, are called messengers, angels. The word angel is actually used, not just for heavenly beings, but even for those mouthpieces of God that would, would preach. So, I mean, maybe. Um, Luther himself um, questions whether or not this is not Shem, not Seth, the son of Adam, but Shem, the son of Noah. So after the, um, the flood, Noah's sons all, all disperse. Luther is, is quite content with um, Roman Catholic lore at the time, which says that... Um, 
Shem, Noah's son, is um, taken upon the office of a priest, and so he forgoes his name into the office, which I can get down with into the idea of, of names into office. And so I don't go by Pastor Harrison here, and we've kind of talked about that, right? My name just sort of had to die for me to be a pastor here because Harrison can't help you. Like, I, I got nothing. But God has promised to work here, and so the name of the office then shines forth. And so you call me pastor. And if there's three of us in the room, you want to make sure you get the right one, you say Pastor Goodman. It's not simply a, I went to seminary and deserve respect. No, um, I, don't, I don't care. I get called much more so than my first name on a pretty regular basis. Um, but but it's, it's that um, we, we do, in fact, hide in the office because the office is where God has actually promised to work. And so when you go to the hospital and you're, you're really, really sick, you call the doctor by his first name. No, and it's not just I want to think about it and make sure he knows that he's not better than me just because he makes ten times as much. It's, it's because I need what you can do. I need doctoring. In the middle of the night, they know our names, but they still call out mom and dad. We, we take shelter, umbrage, in the office because the office is where God has promised to work. And so Luther speculates that, that Shem takes on the name Melchizedek, righteousness, um, because this is what he does. He bestows righteousness in the land of peace. Um, which I can kind of get down on that. Um, until we start to deal with the, the timelessness of it. Uh huh. Correct. This is why I think he's wrong. I mean, this is why I think Luther's wrong here. Um, and, and Luther is wrong sometimes. That's, it's not the worst thing in the world to say. Um, we don't, as Lutherans, say, I believe everything Luther ever believed. We say, I, I believe, uh, I mean, if you really want to pigeonhole me, I believe in the 1580 Book of Concord. And most of those, weren't, most of those books weren't written by Luther. Luther didn't pen half of it. Um, and so to be Lutheran um, was to kind of embrace a pedantic, um, which most of the Protestants have done in one form or another. Um, Methodists got to be Methodists because people were making fun of them and they took on the title. Um, because uh, John Wesley said, this is the method to your salvation. And they said, oh, you're a Methodist. And they kind of rolled their eyes and said, yeah, whatever, dude, just fine. And in the same way, um, Lutherans, it, they were called Lutherans as, as um, uh, uh, they were mocking us. You left the church, <laughs> you believe Luther. You worship Luther? No, we don't. Dude, stop. Fine, whatever. Um, and Luther struggled with this himself. He hated the name, and he finally just went along with it. But he said, as long as they're not worshiping me. Um, but, but um, yeah, we don't, we don't follow everything Luther believes. This is one of those places I think Luther might be wrong. And you can disagree with me and say it's Shem, and maybe. We'll find out in the last day. Um, personally, I, I do believe that this is the Alpha and the Omega at work inside of the Old Testament, which it happened. I mean, frequently. Um, what, one of the joys that, that we find God at work amongst his people is, is again, um, the, the idea that, that God is not sort of trapped in heaven or, or even just walling himself off in heaven might be the better way to say it. Um, he wants a, a nice, clean place where it's nice and safe and there's nothing unclean and nothing dirty around. And so he separates himself from, you know, the, the filthy math, masses like us. He sits up in the box seats um, while, while we, we're all down here slumming it. no. Throughout all of scripture, God has joined his people. 
um, God has dwelt with us. When he made us this place, even when we broke it, he didn't abandon it. Um, the, the idea that, that Christ would be at work amongst his people, even before he was incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, um, was because there was, in fact, one divine goal. This isn't changing things up. This isn't a new plan for salvation. This isn't a new religion. This is a fulfillment of the religion. And so then the idea that we've sort of twisted Judaism based on intertestamental myths and grabbed hold of, you know, um, a whole bunch of um, ancient Egyptian gods and, and polished them up and, and put, you know, a, a white guy with blue eyes in there, even though he was born in the Middle East. No, this is something that, that has been pointed to all along throughout the scriptures. That, that, yes, we do read all of the scriptures through the lens of Jesus because we do actually believe that all of the scriptures are about Jesus. He himself says uh, in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but I tell you the truth, these things testify of me. If we look for Jesus in the Old Testament, it's not that we can find a few verses that might maybe talk about him, like there'll be a virgin that conceives and bears a son, but we actually start to find the whole Old Testament is, in fact, all about Jesus. It's all about your salvation. It's all about God being with and merciful to sinners. And so when we start to, to do this thing, um, there I, I get very comfortable with the idea that God would dwell with his people. So I don't, I don't know. Any questions there? I mean, essentially, yes. Um, that, that the only time we actually deal with the, the fullness of the deity in, in person is in the person of, of Jesus. Um, and, and so here's the thing. What is this? Um, and I'm going to flat say I don't know. Because you start to, to wrestle with some really, really complicated questions. And I don't know that I have the answers to them. In, in that, um, is the pre-incarnate Christ then... Um, thus in, in entirely divine and not yet um, also entirely man, uh, approachable. Um, because he's, he's dealing with people right there. Um, but I, I'll stick to the scriptures, which say, um, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is how we deal with God. In other words, we don't go right to the Father. We go through the Son, who is the propitiation for our sins, the way that we might stand before God without being squashed because of our uncleanness. Um, when, we, when we deal with the fact that we simply can't approach God because he's too holy, um, well, how do you pray our Father then? We pray through Christ, yeah. And so um, the Lutheran prayer is, is this. We pray to the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. To the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. So we pray, our Father, I know who we're praying to. How are you a son of God? Well, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ? We pray in Christ. And so we even, in Jesus' name, we pray. Um, and we pray through the Holy Spirit, which has given us the words, for no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the 
Holy Spirit. Um, the, the idea then that, that, that God would be utterly inaccessible to us, even in the Old Testament, is, is untrue. Um, he has always sort of had to, to um, give us the means to approach him, which is the issue. And so it's not then that the Holy of Holies was, was unapproachable. There were means that it was brought forth. The means were only the high priest can go in, and only after certain rituals, and, and, and only in, then in the right way. Um, but when he was in there, what was he supposed to do but bring out holiness for the people? God's holiness was never kept locked away. When the priest went in there, he was actually supposed to then, on the Day of Atonement, on, on Yom Kippur, bring sacrifice that all of the people's sins would be Wiped away. Even when you want to play when, then with like the Ark of the Covenant, because there's that story, and I don't know the chapter in the verse, I don't know the guy's name, but they're trying to carry the Ark of the Covenant across the river, and it starts to slip, and the guy grabs it, and he dies, and you're like, God, really? He was trying to help. Really? Um, again, it's not that God is inapproachable, but it's that there are, in fact, specific means to approach him. In other words, we don't go right to the Father, even if we have a really good reason at the time. We go as God has given us to go, and by the way, that thing only happened because they are trying to take a shortcut. I'm just saying, if you just done it the right way, don't go hacking with the liturgy, just do it the right way. Um, we approach God as he has given us to see him. And, and that is, again, through the second person of the Trinity. Um, I'm tempted to say, and I, I don't know. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know an answer. I don't know. That, that's me wrestling with it, yeah. Other questions or, or comments here? All right. Uh, suppose next week we'll uh, we'll dive into the liturgy. Uh, let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all.